You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, we've got Alfonso Pecatiello, who is the author of The Macro Compass, a free macro newsletter, and the former head of a $20 billion bond investment portfolio. Alf, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You've been here before, so you know it is awesome to get you back on again. Thank you, Sri, and uh, happy birthday, of course. Or <laughs> congratulations for making it to 18. Yay. Uh, I can say loudly, you're by far the most knowledgeable 18 years old about finance that is probably out there in the entire world. So congrats to you, you. and happy thank birthday you. Again. Thank you. That's really nice of you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Alf, so, you know, I want to first start off by talking a bit about, you know, your former role at a bank. So, you know, what was that like? You know, you were, so, you know, you... So, you know, usually, you know, when you think of someone running a massive amount of money, like $20 billion, you know, you usually think of some, you know, 50, 60 year old guy in some fancy office wearing a suit. And, and, you know, that's, that's usually the way that goes, but then, you know, you are, you know, you are still young, you're, you're still 17 years old. So, so, uh, so, so, so what was that like? What was the experience like, you know, and, um, and yeah, so, and, and, you know, do you have any cool stories or sure. war stories from that time? So. I think the key point on how did I actually manage to get there is that I posted a thread on Twitter as well about it is a mix of luck and skills. I always say a mix and I attribute about 50% to luck. So the point is the skills you need to get there are quantitative skills, of course. You need to know about macroeconomics, the bond market and all of that. But a lot of those skills are also soft skills. So those are so underrated, like communication skills, being able to interact with different stakeholders, being able to tune your message up or down, depending to the audience you're talking to. I'll give you one example. If you go and want to invest in Italian bonds and you're a European uh, bank or a North European bank, let's say, there will always be a stigma, always, because Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, all these so-called peaks countries where pretty close to defaulting around 2011, 2012. And a lot of these Northern European banks before that time were pretty full of this, you know, government bonds. And so they suffered a lot of either upfront losses by selling these bonds at a loss, or their capital was eroded big times in the meantime, because these prices were going down. And so, you know, their shareholders had something to say to the management of these Northern European banks because they were full of these investments, right, in their liquidity portfolios. And so 10 years later, even if things are completely different, when you go there and you ask for limits to your risk manager, uh, yeah, you know, you have to tune your message in a way that he will want to at least listen to you, right? And you can be the smartest guy out there. You can have the best content, but if you're not able to communicate to your risk manager in an effective way, you're not going to even be able to start a conversation about Italian or Spanish or Greek bonds, right? So 
it's a mix of hard skills and soft skills and communication skills and luck. So you need to be at the right place at the right time. And you need to have a manager that really believes in you. You need to have mentors, at least one, somebody with gray hair or no hair at all that has been there before you and can teach you how these corporate dynamics work, really. And you have to pay attention and be willing to learn and be curious about those. Got it, got it. And, you know, moving on from that, you know, I wanted to get into talking about markets. And so, you know, recently, last week, you know, we had the Fed chair come in and uh, the presser was very, very hawkish and, you know, FinTwit was sort of all over it. So I wanted to start off by asking, you know, what's your take on it? And, you know, how are you thinking about uh, interest rates on the front end of the curve going forward? So as I wrote on the Macro Compass, I think Powell's press conference was probably the most talkish I can remember since the very infamous, famous and infamous, we are far away from neutral comment of 2018. So effectively, he was given the chance to try and tune his message to be a little bit more dovish plenty of times by journalists. They asked him, um, do you think you can hike 50 basis points in March? Do you think you can hike at every single meeting going forward rather than only the big four meetings that you have in front of you? What do you think of labor force participation rate? Because it hasn't picked up. So, you know, it seems like the labor force is not getting pretty big. And so how do you interpret that? And then he was asked many more questions to sort of make him, you know, be uh, doubtful about his hawkish stance. And at every single of these questions, he basically leaned on the mic and he said, maybe you didn't get it. I'm hawkish. So the answer to can you hike 50 basis points in March or can you hike at every single meeting was basically, I am not going to remove the right tail hawkish risk of yeah. Federal Reserve action in 2022. You know, you guys in the bond, euro dollar future uh, pricing are trying to price it in. I can decide to make the distribution more centered around the modal outcome of four hikes. Let's say, let's agree on that, that being the base case that you wanted market price in. And then he could have cut the right tail and he didn't. Yeah. He just went there and said, I validate you guys. Please go ahead and price his right tail even further. And guess what happened? After the press conference, the distributions shifted is mean, it's mean to the right. So from four ikes went to five ikes being now the model case being priced in, but the right tail has become fatter. There is now a 30% chance priced in Euro dollar markets and using options to calculate that, that they will be able to hike six or more times in 2022 only. So the reaction of the market is basically, Powell, you don't even wanna budge when asked about financial conditions. I mean, they asked him, look, these financial conditions have gone basically all the way back, almost all the way back to 2020, levels yeah. to before pandemic levels. Now they have fully gone back after the press conference. Before they were on the way there. And he was asked, what do you make of that? So he was basically asked, do you validate the market pricing in risk premium equities being repriced, high yield spreads starting to reprice wider, real interest rates repricing two and a half standard deviations in two weeks, how do you feel about that? And his answer was, well, financial conditions, as long as they don't threaten my dual mandate, I honestly yeah. couldn't care less. And then what happens really when you do that is that a market which is already chasing these sort of trades basically gets the green light. 
a trader that is thinking, can I continue chasing this trade will now say, well, definitely I can yeah. because I got Powell not removing any of these steel risks. Yep. Yep. And you know, one, one thing that comes along with higher interest rates is, or at least the expectation is that growth slows. And you know, one theme that you've been talking about is a yield curve inversion and growth slowing into the, into the rest of this year. So could you sort of talk a bit about growth dynamics and how you're looking at that? Yes. So if I look at the uh, now costs of real GDP growth now, they have absolutely collapsed. So the most famous of those, I think, is the Atlanta Fed GDP yep. now cost, which I think at the last update at 0%, probably on the first quarter annualized rate in real mm. growth. Now, this, this number was about, I think, 4% in Q1, uh, only a few weeks ago, really. So these now costs are now getting revised down pretty aggressively. And is, re- is that a surprise to me? Not really. I've been banging the table for quarters now that the peak in the impulse of growth was in summer 2021. Maybe I should explain myself better. What I look at here, so our, our economy grows or you know, policymakers want it to grow in real GDP terms by definition. That's what we achieve as human society, right? We would like yeah. to create more wealth over time. All right, cool. So people looking at the growth rate itself are missing a key point what matters here for markets and interpretation policymakers are going to make out of the entire environment is the acceleration or deceleration in this growth rate. So it's the pace of growth. That's what I'm really focused on. And if I looked at, at basically the numbers, it was pretty clear that this pace of growth had peaked in around summer 2021. And the reason why it did is that this acceleration throughout 2020 and the first half of 2021 was mostly driven by fiscal stimulus handouts and commercial banks extending loans as they were guaranteed by the government. So the government was picking up the credit risk that banks had on loans. So they felt like, well, it's pretty much a free lunch. I'm going to lend more money to the private Mm -hmm. sector. Now, of course, this had peaked somewhere like in late 2020. And then with a little bit of a lag, you start seeing this impulse of growth declining, which means we're still growing at a pretty robust pace but we're not accelerating that. Yeah. And the acceleration in the impulse of growth had already been going on from summer. And in my models was only about to accelerate as we went into the beginning of 2022. Now, Omicron obviously plays a role together with other cyclical variables. But from a big picture perspective, when we enter the year with earnings being priced year on year to be 9% or 10% in the S&P 500, year on year analyst consensus estimates, I always felt they were way too optimistic and now the market is indeed repricing down to these growth levels. Interestingly, my last point on that is that if I look at the credit impulse, which is my main metric to try and understand what's gonna happen two, three quarters down the road, I'm updating now the the metric as we speak. And the metric has been telling me that by Q4, uh, basically by, yeah, by Q4 2021 and Q1 2022, it seems like we are- This quarter. So this quarter and last quarter, uh-huh. it seems like from an impulse of credit creation basis, we are trying to restart the engine a tiny bit. That comes from American banks having basically more confidence in lending to the private sector as the labor market fully recovers. So commercial banks in America are creating new credit on an ongoing basis, the last quarter and the beginning of this quarter. And East Asia, so 
China and let's say the Asian continent, including China and then Taiwan uh, and these other guys are also apparently in my model trying to rebuild a bit of this acceleration in credit creation, which then would uh, make for a more decent second half of 2022. But before we get there, we still have to go through this deceleration in growth that we are experiencing probably for a few more months. I think the other uh, sort of thing that's playing out is, you know, we're not getting any new fiscal spending at all. And so, you know, fiscal has been a big driver of economic growth since the pandemic. So, well, so now how much would the Euchre have to invert uh, or, you know, how much would growth have to slow to get the Fed to sort of throw in the towel on their whole hawkish you know, crusade or their whole hawkish stance? So that's a great question, Zri, and I think the Fed will ultimately be saved by a, a very sharp deceleration in growth. We're already seeing that, and probably now they will want still to, to tighten. I don't think they will want the right tail of their hawkishness to be realized. So I don't think they will hike 50 basis point. I think they will hike in March, and then they will look at data coming in and decide whether to materialize another another hike already in April or not, or for basically to wait until June to hike again. But if data continues to slow down, they will have to extrapolate that aggregate demand is slowing down. So effectively, if you continue to be very hawkish, you basically are hiking against inflation driven by supply constraints literally because the aggregate demand story you can't justify it anymore because it's slowing down and you can see it in the data so then at that point i believe for them the most the most reasonable thing to do would be to slow down their hawkish stance and they can justify because data is coming in a bit less aggressive they can then extrapolate that over the long term also inflationary pressures are going to ease and therefore they don't need to make realize the right tail of their hawkish stance right so effectively they can hike three or four times this year start a reasonable pace and dynamics of qt and actually get their job done and i think this is my base case data is going to slow down enough to lend the fed the help not to shoot themselves in their own feet i think ultimately that's what's going to happen but before we get there we are now living in this macro environment where growth is coming down and the last public statement by Powell at the press conference didn't do anything to cut the right tail hawkish Fed scenario for 2022, which then means obviously the yield curve flattens out very aggressively as the front end in the euro dollar market needs to reprice the possibility that mm -hmm. the Fed will materialize even the most hawkish stance. Yeah. And the long term of the long bond yields are reflecting completely different dynamics. They are reflecting 30 year implied trend real growth rates, potential growth rate. They are reflecting trend inflation 30 years down the road, and yeah. they're reflecting term premium. And neither of these three components actually gets a, a huge pump up on a structural basis after COVID. That's what I would argue. And the fact that the Fed is basically even tightening faster in the short term increases the probability that over the long term, you won't have anything different than what, what you have seen happening over the last 10 years or so. Got it, got it. And, uh, and you know, speaking of that, uh, and speaking of, you know, 30-year um, sort of implying long-term growth, so how, mu so how much control does the Fed actually have over the long end of, 
the of the of the yield curve simply because a lot of people tend to make the point that the that the only reason yields are at one and a half or two percent right now on the ten year, for example, is because the Fed is buying so much of them that they're not letting yields rise. So is that true? How much how much control does the Fed actually have over the long end? Yeah. So we need to be a bit more technical here. And the counter argument I would have is yields were way too, let's say, distorted in the long end by the Federal Reserve owning a lot of treasuries, then you would have this reflected as well in something called swap spreads. Or basically swap spreads are the difference in yield between treasuries and swaps. And so while the Federal Reserve is actively embarking in bond purchases, so they have a direct impact on the bond market, they do not embark in swaps operations directly. So basically the difference between bond yields that are impacted by the Fed directly via QE or QT and swap rates, which are instead only reflecting the market neutral expectation for federal funds rate over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, depending on the maturity you choose for the swap, this difference would basically have to compress very aggressively because the Fed is influencing big times one market, the bond market via QE, it's extracting collateral away from the bond market. It would have to make the swap spreads very, very narrow, right? I mean, it would have just to, uh, to basically have an impact on this relative metric. And if you look at the swap spreads, on, honestly, well, you know, they move in a range, they can tighten, they can widen, but you don't, you don't find a material influence in America out of that. Swap spreads are also influenced by regulation, balance sheet constraints, et cetera, et cetera. But basically my point is the Federal Reserve obviously is able in the short term to influence bond yields in aggregate, right? And also bond yields relative to swap yields. But over the long term, the main dynamics driving long-term bond yields are the one I, I uh, talked about before. Long-term trend nominal growth, so real growth plus inflationary pressures over the very long term, and term premium, which is defined as the compensation of the risk-averse investor would require for owning a very long-term bond with a lot of duration and interest right. rate against just rolling short-term bills ownership. You, know, you can just own a six-month bill and when it matures, you roll it in. And instead of replicating the third-year bond ownership like that, you literally buy the third-year bond, which means upfront you're locking in a certain return and you're also taking some risk. So you want to be compensated for those. That's called term premium. Long-term nominal growth is influenced by long-term real growth and inflation expectations. And a term premium is influenced by other factors. And these three factors are by far, by, by and large, the most important defining factors of third-year bond yields. The Federal Reserve can impact those short term. If today they would come out and would say, Zri, we're doing QT, we're going to do it in a different aggressive way. We're going to sell bonds from our balance sheet straight away to the private sector. And we're going to choose the longest bonds in terms of maturity from our balance sheet. And we're going to dump them all on the private sector at once. What do you expect the first reaction to be in long and bond deals? They initially expect them up. to rise. Yeah. Very true. They're going to go up. I'm going to add that most of this dynamic would be explained by swap spreads. So swap yields wouldn't be impressed by that, but bond yields, because the private sector all of a sudden has a huge demand imbalance in the short term, they would have to reprice this by making swap spreads basically change their pricing and overall impacting as well bond yields. What would happen then three months later 
would be that risk premia would have to reprice across the board, completely across the board, because the private sector will now have an asset that is yielding a pretty decent return over the very long term where they can allocate uh, you know, they, their portfolios and they can get a return that in real inflation adjusted terms would look all of a sudden much more decent on a marginal basis than today. That would be you know, three months down the road, the dust settles, 30 year bond yields are 3%. And if inflationary pressures and growth pressures and term premium haven't really changed over the very long term, 30 year expectations of, a, of these three components haven't changed, what would you expect the private sector to do? probably to allocate their portfolios to a third year bond that is yielding 3% and over the long term should be able to guarantee certain features. So the Federal Reserve can impact those bond yields short term, both with aggressive QE and aggressive QT, if you wish. But over the, over the medium term, the three structural dynamics are the one that really matter. Yeah. Yeah. And when you speak of structural dynamics, you know, a lot of people tend to say, okay, number one, we've had a 40 year bull market in bonds and number two you know places like europe and japan you know these bond yields are already negative and number three leverage as a whole has gone up significantly you know over the last few decades and so you know people then come to a conclusion that over say the next five to ten years we're going to have some sort of end game play out and so one is there actually some sort of end game or do you think you know this bond bull market will continue and so and if there is an end game you know how does that end game play out hmm. So I would say the bull market in real interest rates is probably likely to continue a bit down the road. The bull market in nominal interest rates, a bit more difficult for it to continue at a very strong pace, but a full reversal, I can't expect that to happen either. So why do I say I'm, I'm pretty convinced about the bull market in real interest rates is because our system is built on continuous credit creation. So we, we basically have to lever up either the private or the public sector more and more to make sure that we create literally new resources, new money, that's credit creation. And then we give this leverage somehow to the private sector. They access it. They, they feel more wealthy at T.0 today. And basically you have this wealth illusion effect that you're growing faster than your structural dynamics would allow for. And how you make this whole system sustainable is that you make new leverage cheaper for the next guy that needs to come in. So a guy that needs to basically, that they wanted to buy a house 30 years ago in America had to pay 10% mortgage rates for 30 years. And now I have to pay two and a half percent or 3%. 3% yeah. Obviously you can borrow a multiple of what you were borrowing 30 years ago with the same real wage. Mm -hmm. just because interest rates and the, the real cost of borrowing has gone down so much. Right? Yep. So if you want the system to continue being oiled and not to fall apart on, on itself, the way you need to do this is basically to keep real interest rates pretty low and have real wages increase at least a tiny bit year by year. And that's what we basically have engineered over the last 20 to 30 years. Real wages have gone up by about one to one and a half percent a year. So you increase a bit your, your capacity, your cash flow capacity in a real way, in a real in real terms. But what really makes a difference is that you can borrow at a much cheaper inflation-adjusted rate. So basically you can borrow more and more, and so you can afford more and more. So these real interest rates are likely to, to drop further or to remain very low for a foreseeable future. It's rather a feature of our system, it's unavoidable.
that this would be the case. When it comes to nominal interest rates, then you're overlaying as well long-term inflationary pressures. Yeah. And while I sit in the long-term disinflationary camp, I am the first one to recognize when things were, you know, when things are at least changing or the probability distribution of future outcomes might skew a bit more to the right when it comes to inflationary pressures. And the reason why I say that is, well, first of all, the green transition obviously involves some of this spending on relatively scarce commodities or relatively scarce capex commodities yeah. that makes the price of these commodities over the very long term likely to go to, to grind higher. This has an impact on inflationary numbers. That's point number one. Point number two is the fact that as labor force participation rate drops and the population ages a bit, then the pie of labor supply available to the private sector becomes smaller, which means that in certain sectors, the wage bargaining power of some of these cohorts, more scarce cohorts of workers might go a bit up. So I'm not saying that inflation is going to settle at three or 4% a year on trend, but if it used to settle at one and a half percent in core inflation, it's perhaps moving a slightly bit to the right. So nominal yields are the sum of real yields and inflation expectation. If you couple them together, I still think the bull market ain't over, but my conviction in the bull market is stronger in real rates than it is in nominal rates. Got it, got it, got it. And uh, so I wanted to move on and talk a bit about central banks. And so you're wearing a t-shirt right now. So if you're listening by audio, so Alfonso's wearing a t-shirt that says central banks print bank reserves, not money. And when it comes to that, so how do you actually think about uh, liquidity? So are, you know, are there different kinds of liquidity? And you know, how do you think about central banks and, well, how do you think about monetary impulses actually affecting, say, you know, equity markets and uh, just in general other markets? You know, how important is it? Um, because one, to an extent, you know, if you directly run some sort of linear regression, it's very hard to find a relationship directly. But, um, but you know, if you think about it, how do you think about liquidity and how do you think about monetary impulses and the way they affect, you know, different assets? Yeah, so let me first clarify the statement on my T-shirt for people who can't see that. Indeed, it says that central banks print bank reserves and not money. So a lot of people have want to have a discussion with me on why do I keep on saying this? And actually, bank reserves can be considered a form of money. They are even included in monetary aggregates M0 in this case. So, I mean, how, who am I to argue that those are not money? The point is, those are not real economy inflationary forms of money. There are two tiers of money. There is an interbank form of money that only gets used literally in the financial system, can only be used to settle payments between two banks. That's bank reserves. It does never get into the real economy. There is another tier of money, which is a real economy inflationary form of money, which is today 97% represented by bank deposits. Uh, Not all bank deposits are the same, but making a, 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 a simple So that statement. is a spendable kind of money, right? So that's the that one you can go buy pineapple pizza with. Bravo. And you cannot do that. With, <laughs> you, well, you shouldn't do, you shouldn't buy pineapple pizza in the first place. My brain is sort of cracking here because you said pineapple pizza. Never do this again. Just kidding. And with, with bank reserves, you can't do that. With certain types of bank deposits, or bills, which today cash, today only represents about two to 3% of our spendable form of money in the real economy. Yes, you can do that. So with that spendable money, you might potentially have inflationary pressures if 
that amount of money increases compared to the amounts of goods and services in the economy. With bank reserves, trust me, they can be 1 trillion, 2 trillion, or 10 trillion. It, it has literally zero impact on whether the, a basket of goods will appreciate or depreciate. It doesn't have a positive correlation. It doesn't have a negative correlation. It has a zero correlation. And Japan is a great case because bank reserves went to the roof 20 years ago. Bank loans, so the amount of money that Victory get in the hands of the private sector went down as years went by. So these bank reserves, though, represent a pretty relevant form of uh, liquidity. Let me call it like that for banks. Because literally, they give a very strong layer of certainty to banks that they will be able to settle interbank payments at the end of the day. They really don't have to worry about that. So settle interbank payments means that if JP Morgan and Bank of America have a gazillion transactions between their customers during the day, at the end of the day, they take the tab and they say, okay, I need to settle, uh, Bank of America needs to settle to JP Morgan for 100 million. They will use bank reserves to do that. Now, these bank reserves therefore give them a pretty strong layer of liquidity. They will be able to settle these payments. But what's really important as well to know is that those bank reserves are counted in what's called regulatory liquidity. So there is a ratio, which is called the liquidity coverage ratio, which was imposed by regulators after 2008, 2009. And this ratio basically makes sure that commercial banks have enough of these reserves to settle payments so that they don't have a liquidity problem, really. And so the, the regulator said, dear banks, you had a balance sheet of 100 full of crap before the, the great financial crisis. And when not even when it came to solvency, but when it came to liquidity itself, you weren't equipped. Maybe you could be solvent, but you, you didn't have enough liquid assets on your balance sheet to settle payments. Yeah. So now you, you must have them because I'm going to impose it to you via regulation, liquidity coverage ratio, which basically tells banks that they need to own enough as liquid assets on their balance sheet to meet a stressed outflow event on their liabilities. So the regulator stresses, you know, how many deposits or, you know, how many liabilities outflows you can have over a 30-day period in a stress scenario. You need to have at least the same amount of assets on, on the asset side that are liquid enough to meet this stressed outflow scenario. Guess what these liquid assets are? Reserves and bonds, first yeah. and foremost. So these reserves basically account for this liquidity buffer that bank needs to own. And for, for you to know, this liquidity buffer is generally about 15% of the asset side of the balance sheet of banks. That's large. It's a very large amount. A large European bank has a balance sheet of 1 trillion, which means their asset side, which must be liquid assets, has to be 150 billion euro, which can be either reserves or bonds. Now, with QE, if you float bank with reserves, because that's what QE does, it takes away the bonds and it gives bank reserves. Well, at some point, their liquidity buffer, which again, they must own for regu regulatory yeah. purposes, that to be composed only of these reserves. These reserves are inert. They yield nothing. Actually, in Europe, they yield negative 0.5% year yeah. over year at the moment. Uh, they have no interest rate risk. Their reserves overnight at the ECB. They have no credit risk. They yield you nothing. They hedge you against no risk, which the bank might run on the liability side of the balance sheet. 
So, you know, at some point, the CFOs and the treasurers are like, I mean, nice, they have this regulatory liquidity thing, but I'm making nothing with these things. So what they're trying to do at some point will be to basically rebalance back their portfolios to something that yields at least something. And they will do it by placing their assets into regulatory well-treated assets that are not reserves and that are still eligible for regulatory liquidity, which is a big sentence to say bonds, all right? So obviously this, the large amount of reserves in the system via second round effects influences banks with their regulatory liquidity portfolio to rebalance the bonds. That yeah. so drives a marginal flow, even to the riskier side of the bond market, you might know, because if everybody's doing that, then rest assured, risk-free bonds are yielding less and less. And that means that you will be incentivized to take risks in other regulatory well-treated assets, which might be corporate bonds, highly rated corporate bonds. So then you tend to move a bit more down the risk spectrum which then drives risk appetite and risk premium across the board. Got it. Got it. Yeah, I think that was a fantastic explanation. And you know, and you know, taking a plane from the U.S. to Europe now. You know, what? Do you, now, how how are you thinking about you know your outlook for the ECB and European inflation, and how does that sort of you know compare and contrast with what's going on in the U.S. at the moment? Yeah. So I think that the most impressive thing to look at in Europe is that. Um, one yields are positive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's actually a news. Talking for a second about that, I just posted on Twitter at, at MacroAlf is the handle that uh, traders in the, let's say, the, the correspondent euro dollar future. So let's say the ECB uh, deposit rate future. Let me just uh, say that for a second for people to understand are now pricing the ECB to have the most aggressive hiking cycle over the next 12 months that they ever priced over the last 10 years. So you have to go back all the way to 2011 to see an ECB being priced so hawkish over the next 12 months as it is now. And so hawkish, by the way, means that they're gonna raise rates by December this year by I think about, I think it was like, uh, no, not December this year, February next year, one year forward. So February next year by about 40 basis point. Oh my God, that's super hawkish for European standards, extremely hawkish, right? Okay. Now, um, why is that? Because inflation surprised on the upside once again in Europe. Yesterday, uh, data were out for Germany, for Spain, for France as well. And all these inflationary figures surprised the upside against consensus. So I think in Germany, we printed at almost 6% year on year, in Spain at about 5% plus. So we're surprising on the upside. Um, the interesting thing in Europe is that the slack in the labor market is much larger than in America. And people uh, mismeasure this lack in the labor market by obsessing about U3 unemployment rate. That's the, bro the, the, the not the broadest, sorry, the most common definition of unemployment rate, which only focuses literally on unemployed people divided by the labor force the total civilian labor force. Now, the thing is the unemployed people or together with the unemployed people, there are also people that are, let's say detached from the labor force, which means that, you know, they are not actively looking for job and or, or partially looking for job, which excludes them from the definition of being unemployed. And so if you broaden the definition of unemployment rate from U3 to U6, 
And so U6 in America today, I think is about 7%, slightly above that level. And so that would include unemployed people, part-time, not because they chose to be part-time people, um, detached people from the labor force, and all these, you know, uh, broader definition of unemployed, unemployed people, in America it's 7%. If you look at Europe, that number last time I checked was at least double, 15, 16%, which means that this, the real slack in the, in, in, the, in the labor market in Europe is much larger and you're seeing this reflected in wages too. So even if inflation is spring at 5% in Europe, the compensation per employee or other units of negotiated wages are not picking up at all. In America's read, they are picking up still below inflationary levels, so real wages are negative, but in Europe, there are not even mature material signs that these this, this nominal wages are picking up. And that's because, in my opinion, part of it is explained by the fact that the real slack in the labor market in Europe is much broader than it is in America. And so when, when ECB board members look at uh, inflation down the road, so going you know, much, much further down the road than not only considering supply bottlenecks today or what's happening today in commodity prices, they look at purchasing power, they look at wages. And what they see is a labor market that's still at plenty of slack. And therefore they tend to be a bit more conservative about, you know, inflationary pressures down the road and the prospectus they have. Got it, got it. Um, moving on, there was a very good question that came through Twitter. And so it was, you know, how does the growth to value rotation operate within your, your macro compass uh, framework? So, you know, in your macro compass, you've got that quadrant model. And mm -hmm. so how does the growth to value rotation, where does that fit in? Yeah. So I am, let's talk about what I am now in terms of positioning, just to make it concrete. Uh, I'm long NASDAQ and short Russell. It's a trade that, um, you know, it's as every other trade I put on, it's publicly available, the entry, the stop, the target, I have nothing to hide. It's, it's performing okay now. So I am in the period where I want to be long growth, short value. And that's quadrant one of my model, the top left part of the quadrant that you fit in where from a big macro perspective, the credit creation is decelerating. So you are still creating credit, but at a much slower pace than you used to do a year or two years ago, for instance. And let's say the monetary policy stance hasn't gotten uh, extremely hawkish yet. So in that, in that quadrant, then you basically want to still be long assets that benefit from secular trends. Because if, if you don't create credit at, at an increasingly faster pace, then you are not boosting cyclical growth. You're going back to your secular trends. And so in your secular trends, if you want to be long risk, you have to be along the secular assets rather than the cyclical assets. And that's why I am exactly in that quadrant where if I have to be long the stock market, I want to be long quality tech stocks, what I call them quality tech stocks. So the NASDAQ also has non-quality tech stocks, but to make it an easy index trade, I always say long NASDAQ and short Russell. Vice versa, let's move all the way back to, let's say the beginning of 2021. In the beginning of 2021, you are in a completely different quadrant, which is the quadrant two, where you have monetary policy still being relatively accommodative, but credit creation is actually picking up. 
because you still have fiscal stimulus that are coming through. You have bank lending that is coming through. And therefore, you have cyclical earnings picking up. And in that environment, you want to be long risk. You actually can be long whatever you want in that environment because it's, you know, the economy is picking up. Central banks are super accommodative. You can be long whatever you want. But in that environment, I might want to lean being long value stocks rather than growth stocks. If I have to choose, I can be long both. I'll probably make money just on the equity beta, let's say. But if I have to choose, then I will be long value stocks. So ultimately, it all comes to is the monetary policy stance to getting uh, in a knockish direction, in a dovish direction. But moreover, are we printing credit at an increasingly fast pace or not? And today, we are not printing credit at an increasingly fast pace at all. And you know, so you want to be on the, on, the, on the left side of the quadrant, which either means if you want to be long risk, you have to be long the secular things, or you don't want to be long risk at, at all. all. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is sort of the, the, the profile of bond investing is it seems to have changed. So you know, earlier, you know, bonds used to be considered a hedge. To equity so you know people would diversify their equity so you know when equity went down you know they would expect that the bonds will would go up and therefore you know hedge out those equity losses but then what we've seen is so in so over the last month or so month and a half we've seen sort of a correction in the broader equity market and what we've also seen is uh bonds uh long end uh, uh bonds on the long end of the yield curve have come down so for example tlt has been down since early december and so, so what has actually changed? So, you know, number one, uh, it seems like the bonds and equities have become correlated. So, you know, what, what is actually driving that dynamic? And, you know, why are bonds not hedging equity losses? Yeah, that's because you're repricing risk premium across the board. And that basically means that risk-free real interest rates have moved up over the last two weeks, over the first two weeks of January 2022, by 40 to 50 basis points. What I did at the Macro Compass is I stacked three, all the bi-weekly moves of real interest rates in America going back for 10 years, rolling bi-weekly moves, right? And I stacked them in a distribution and the move of the first weeks of January was in the right cycle of the distribution, of course, because it was very strong, but it was the worst 2% percentile move so we're talking about it ranked the seventh worst over the last 10 years, worst 2% percentile, extremely sharp move in real interest rates up. And real interest rates can move up for a couple of reasons. A, because cyclical growth is pumping on all cylinders, and therefore the economy can take higher real interest rates because it's producing more cash flows. Servicing your high debt load will not be a problem even at more expensive levels because your, your real salary is going up. Your real cash flows are going up. And that's what I call the healthy move in real interest rates. But what we have seen is an unhealthy move in real interest rates. We have seen inflation expectation going nowhere at all since November last year, even a bit down. And we have seen the Federal Reserve telling you, I'm sorry, guys, it's not transitory anymore. I need to change my policy stance. And when you do that fast rotation, while the economy is not pumping on all cylinders, then you get an unhealthy move in the real interest rates. And when you do that three, then you have to reprice risk premium across the board, which means that you know equity, of course, goes down, but the bond market is not temporarily not able to hedge you 
because real rates have to move up, which means nominal yields as inflation expectations are not falling that fast. Nominal yields are also going up. So you are in that situation, which is an abrupt move that yeah. moves both the bond market and the equity market. When the dust settles, when the dust settles, which I think at some point in terms of pricing settled already in the long term of the bond market, settled already a couple of weeks ago. I went live on Twitter, long 10-year treasuries at 185%. I was bombarded. You don't know what you're doing. You're crazy. You're nuts. Da, 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 da. Now, fast forward, we have never breached 185% again. We have gone all the way down to 170, that to 175. We're holding there. At a certain point, once the risk premium has been repriced across the board already, and real rates have had such a sharp move, yeah. that there's a, a vicious effect on, on equity markets as well and on credit spreads, the central bank will obviously have to tune down a bit the message. And when they do tune down a bit the message, then bonds can serve again as a hedge against yep. equity drawdowns. Yeah. Yeah, got it, got it. And one more thing is that, so when it comes to say picking a stock like Apple, you know, what you have to just look at is like, you know, Apple's financials or the Apple fundamentals. And then, you know, you don't really have to worry about anything relative to Apple per se. But one thing that everyone's been watching right now is the dollar trade where, you know, the DXY has been going up. And the one thing with currencies is that they're relative. You know, you can't, you cannot trade the uh, Euro like absolutely, you know, you have to trade relative to say the British pound or the US dollar in this case. So now how do you, you know, how are you thinking about this dollar trade? And, you know, how do you see, say, you know, the euro, pound, and yen, so sort of the three, uh, three major currencies, uh, you know, over the next three to six months? Well, it's a good question. So um, the DXY is about, I think, 57 or 60%. Percent euro, yeah. And the rest is, again, the yen and a few other stuff. So let's talk about euro dollar, shall we? Because I think that explains a pretty large portion of, of the, the DXY trade. Just in general, you know, your thoughts on the dollar trade. Um, yeah, so... Um, Again, a function of real interest rates and credit creation. So, you know, in 20, when you are in 2020 and you're seeing a huge amount of real dollars, not bank reserves, proper dollars, the dollars you can spend in the real economy being created via fiscal deficits and bank loans. And at the same time, you're seeing real interest rates drop to basically record lows. Uh, that's the perfect setup. Uh, for dollar bears. Now, dollar bears against what exactly? I mean, what are we talking about? And then the dollar actually dropped against anything you can imagine, equity markets, gold, euro, anything, you name it, because in a relative term, the, 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 the US was doing by far the strongest effort in putting as many dollars out there as possible at the lowest possible real interest rate. Uh -huh. So the, yeah. the dollar drops against anything, euro included, whatever it was, actually it was dropping. Now you move back to end of 2021, the situation is exactly the opposite because in a relative basis, America is tightening the fastest it has because for every credit sugar rush, there is a credit cliff. And so the credit cliff means that on an incremental basis, there are solid old dollars being created now because the fiscal stimulus is not there anymore at the same pace at all. It's not comparable while Europe or Japan, as they did less before, also on an incremental basis, they're, they are undoing less now. So then basically the dollar starts to retire again against consensus. And you are at a situation where front-end interest rate differentials also start to make a bit of difference. I mean, when, when Euro-dollar future guys start to price in 30% chance of more than six hikes in a single year, 
then you know that owning dollar on an inflation-adjusted basis in marginal terms is getting less expensive probably throughout the next year. So you can own dollars marginally at a cheaper cost, and then you tend to go into that. Looking forward six months from now, there are a couple of interesting dynamics. So as basically also other central banks have repriced more hawkish, take the ECB, I just made the example before, then also the marginal cost of owning euros, inflation adjusted, also goes down. So you might make an argument that on a relative real interest rate differential at the front end, Europe or Japan might slowly try to catch up with the dollar real interest rates going up. The second argument you can make, especially about Europe, is that the fiscal impulses in Europe has been a bit delayed. And that's because of the nature of the fiscal impulse, which was mostly done by the European Recovery Fund, whose yeah. funds are literally being disbursed over time, while the STEMIs in America were dispersed straight away, basically throughout yeah. 2020 and the first quarter of 2021. And in Europe, this fiscal impulse is coming a bit later which makes me want to try and be long euro dollar if the global macro environment allows me to be, because there is also this fiscal stimulus mismatch, basically, that we are going to see in, in disbursements because of the European Recovery Fund. Mm -hmm. Yep. And you know, thinking about other currencies, so say the yen or the, or the British pound, so how, do you, how are you thinking about um, other, uh, other currencies um, against the dollar? Well... The British pound is what I call a developed market proxy for an emerging market currency. So, <laughs> I mean, nothing against my British listeners. No, just joking. But it tends to behave a lot sometimes like an emerging market currency. It's a levered up version of the euro, effectively. So Britain is very levered towards global trade. Um, and it's, 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 it's basically a currency that also can have very large swings in real interest rates compared to the euro. So it's basically a high beta version of, um, of the euro. That's the way I see that. And then there are, of course, idiosyncratic risks and political risks to be involved in there. And the yen, on the other hand, is a completely different animal because there you have a, basically have a low beta super defensive currency because the, the Japan is much, much ahead compared to where Europe and the US are in, in this monetary fiscal experiment. And they basically can't get their real interest rates down anymore. They just can't do that because nominal rates in Japan are basically floored at 0%. They won't go with negative interest rates. And inflation expectations, uh, can you tell me how are you going to push them up in Japan? I mean, I wish you really good luck with that. So you are stuck with a flat line, real interest rates at about 0% or actually even higher if you start to price in deflation in Japan. So then the yen naturally tends to attract flows when, when you are looking for a, a, a relatively safe currency that also pays you a positive to zero real interest rates. So very low beta um, currency because it, it cannot really swing in real interest rates up or down. And also when it comes to credit, they also don't swing. I mean, if I look at the contribution of Japan to my credit, it's pretty small. So you're really using two different animals on two spectrum, a very high beta currency and a very low beta currency. And you can obviously use them according to the macro cycles in different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and so let's say um, so you know your uh, again you know your T-shirt says you know central banks print bank reserves not money and so you know going back to that point prior to uh, you know prior to say twenty twenty one we were in a low growth low inflation environment and right now you know assuming that you know inflation is trans uh, transitory 
you know, going forward, we, we will sort of return. To, uh, do you think we will return to that environment? And number two, if, if so, you know, if they said, you know, Alfonso, you know, you are now in control of central banks and, you know, you can change whatever you want about the policy function or the way central banks can operate, you know, how, you know, how would you go about changing it so that, you know, they can actually help growth and inflation in a positive way? What a question, man. So I'm going to try and be short on low inflation, low growth environment. As I said before, I think the, the distributions have slightly shifted. So when it comes to real growth, we are slightly shifted lower even. So on the left side of the distribution, the economy is becoming more overlevered. And also the demographic trend are going to make it even worse when it comes to generating trend real growth going forward. So post-pandemic, I see a real growth trend even moving to the left side of distribution a bit more. When it comes to inflationary pressures, I see them moving a little bit to the right because of what I explained before. Those are long-term factors like ESG or the fact that an aging demographics reduces the labor supply to the economy. So in certain sectors, you might have more wage bargaining power as time progresses that might put a little bit of upside pressure to inflation. So I moved one distribution, real growth, slightly to the left, one distribution, inflationary trends slightly to the right. When it comes to, well, in nominal terms, it didn't really change much. I would argue on, on a total basis or so real plus inflation, we have moved slightly down as well in nominal terms, slightly, not by much. When it comes to central banks, I'm so tired of talking about central banks. I'm sorry, but they, they can't do much. A central bank its main function is to be the clearing house of commercial banks, right? I mean, yeah. that's why they were born in the first place in our monetary system. I think you Jeff know? Snyder had like a good analogy. He said that, you know, a central bank is like a fire station. You know, they can put out fires like inflation, but, you know, they don't have the tools to start it. I completely agree with that. Um, they have tools, uh, to be honest, they have tools uh, that are very difficult to use. For instance, regulation is by far their biggest tool. Yeah. They can go to a commercial bank and they can say, ladies and gentlemen, regulation from tomorrow changes. So your capital requirements for loans are zero. So you don't need to touch any capital. But they did that in the US, right? And we still haven't seen like loan growth. So. In or, Italy, not because you, you, as we say in Italy, you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make the horse drink. drink yeah. So people say, right, I mean, we change regulation and that is going to drive loan growth and then the loan growth to make loan growth you need the private sector to want to have loan demand in the first place the private sector is already very leveraged it could get more leveraged if it could see either very cheap credit and or an, a productive outlet for this credit and, and at the moment to be honest i really don't see many of those but with regulation they can be super effective if they wanted to by changing the rules of the game so they can say you need to own less liquid assets. You are less uh, punished for making loans when it comes to the capital you need to attach against loans. You know, regulation, I think, is, is the strongest weapon central banks have, contrary to what people think that the strongest weapon they have is uh, when it comes to inflation eh, and real growth, especially. It's QE, QT, bit higher rates, bit lower rates. To be honest, especially for trend growth and trend inflation, they can't do much about it. Uh, regulation is by far the strongest weapon. Yeah, yeah. It's, I, I think it's one of. I think it's one. You know, as you mentioned, you can take a horse to the water, but you know, you cannot force a horse to drink. And so, I think that's sort of how um, you know central banking is playing out. You, know, you can bring down the 
reserve requirement to zero, but then you know you cannot for you gotta you cannot uh, well unless like politically uh, uh do you think like uh, overall politics is gonna play a larger role? So you know politicians will start to force banks to lend once they sort of realize that the problem is with lending growth. So Russell Napier, I think, is one of the yeah, he's, he's, yeah, so he's been yeah talking about that. So basically of the government subsidizing bank loans, which is what happened in 2020. Yeah. He would think this would be used much more uh, going down the road. Well, I think these regulatory changes take decades to be made out of this size. I mean, think of basal regulation. It took forever to be to be given birth to. Uh, I think the direction of travel is that commercial banks will be forced to give away some of their flexibility and freedom in redirecting credit. I mean, policymakers will understand, they have already understood that they need more control on where credit is going and when and how, which is what China is doing. China is telling state-owned banks, you can or can't lend to this sector, you can lend at this rate, and you have to lend now or you have to just close the taps. They have an, an immense power, centralized power of redirecting credit, which has served them pretty well over the last 10 to 20 years. I think policymakers will want to get some of this power in Western Europe to uh, Western, um, the Western world too. It's, it's, it, it just takes time, to be honest. And then the last thing I want to say is that you talked about reserve requirements being a zero, but banks don't lend reserves. Really. Yeah. So you can put it at zero or you can put it a bit higher. What I was it wouldn't make about, too much of a difference. What I was talking about is capital requirements. So I was talking about uh, you know, the regulator going to JP Morgan and saying, if today you make a mortgage and you need to put out of 100 notional land for a mortgage, 10 capital set aside to protect against default risks of this mortgage. So you are at least, you have a bit of capital buffer against a potential default. They could come and they could say, sorry, you just need zero or one or two now. And that would incentivize JP Morgan to make more of these mortgages and more of these loans because their return on equity would look better. So they can do a lot of things to sort of incentivize banks to lend from a regulatory perspective. But again, you can bring the horse to the water, but you can't force the horse to drink. Yeah. And you know, to, to get to the end, you know, I, I have to ask, but, uh, but, you know, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? And, you know, I know you hate Bitcoin, but, you know, uh, I don't do you, hate Bitcoin. But do you think do you think that you know eventually the Bitcoin might pose a threat to the US dollar being the global hegemon um, or like the uh, or sort of the the global reserve currency? Do you think Bitcoin will eventually start to pose a threat, or do you think you know Bitcoin? Is, what's what's sort of your base case for Bitcoin in the long term? So I would say that first of all, I don't hate Bitcoin. I, I don't have any emotions about any asset classes. That's what I learned. My yeah. experience of being emotional doesn't pay off. Yeah, I mean, I'm the first guy to say uh, I, I'm a disinflation guy. I think growth is going to suck long term. If facts change, I'm going to change my mind. I don't care if I was wrong before. I need to be try to be right next time. That's basically how I approach things. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin is the same. I consider it a digital asset. It is a digital asset. It's a very volatile asset class that has some very peculiar and interesting features uh, because it aligns with the digitalization and the, you know, the, the advancing technology in the world. So I think it's an asset which is very difficult to ignore or to just you know, rubber stamp with it's going to be worth zero. Um, I also hate the maximalists saying that tomorrow we're going to buy bananas denominated in Bitcoin because the dollar is not going to be accepted anymore. I think that's a bit too much as well. So 
there was an article on the macro compass called the macro endgame where I suggested that if we're going to see a monetary reset, which is inevitable when we see one every 100 years, 70 years, 200 years, you, you can't say exactly how, how close that is, but in a monetary reset, given how, how technology has shaped the world and will continue to shape the world, probably digital assets will play a role in this monetary reset. Uh, you know, I, I have a hard time thinking they will play a major, huge role or they will fully displace all fiat currencies, but I think they will play a role. And yeah. that's why I own some of these digital assets in my long-term portfolio. I weigh them by the volatility and I weigh them as well by the fact that I could be completely wrong and lose all my money invested in this asset class, although I don't expect this to be the base case. And therefore, I own 2% of my wealth denominated in digital assets. That, that's the stance I have. It's basically a call option. I pay a premium. The premium is worth 2% of my wealth. And if I am right, then I get a, a very convex payoff. And during the, the, the time, basically, I get an asset that gets a boost from negative interest rates, gets a boost from more credit creation, et cetera, et cetera. So over time, I get an asset that should deliver decently for which I spend a call option premium of 2% of my wealth. Yep, yep. Uh, if you know, to reach the end of the podcast, you know, what are your best tips for making pizza? Because, you know, you're Italian, you know, you've, uh, uh, you know, you've shared a lot of these pizzas, uh, you, you've shared a lot of these good looking pizzas on, uh, uh, on Twitter. So, you know, what, what are your, uh, what, are, what are the best tips for making a good pizza? Oh, okay. I'll give you two tips. I'm, I'm really generous. So the first one is um, the oven temperature. So a proper Neapolitan pizza, actually, there is just one pizza, which is Neapolitan pizza. All the rest, you can call it something else. The Neapolitan pizza is actually baked at preferably above 400 degrees Celsius. Now, a normal kitchen oven won't get there, but there are some tricks. You can put it as much as high as you can and then use the grill function. So if you use the grill function, the top of the oven will be very, very warm, very warm. And then you can put your pizza tray straight just under the top of the oven. So then that part of the oven will be very, very hot, close to 350 maybe Celsius, but that would give you some sort of Neapolitan results and needs to cook for maybe three or four minutes at that, at that, uh, at that temperature. And the second one is the dough. So, I mean, just do some, uh, some proper work here and get the sourdough, a starter, a sourdough starter. And then from there, actually your, your, your dough and the preparation of your dough will look much better. Got it. Got it. For that, Alf, you know, I wanted to thank you for being on the podcast and could you tell the listeners, you know, more about your work, you know, your newsletter, you know, what you talk about and, you know, where they can find, uh, where they can find you. Sure. Sorry. So I think the easiest way to find me is to go on the macro compass. You can just Google it. Um, it's a Substack newsletter. It's yep. the macro compass.substack.com is the one. I'll add that in the description. So. Oh, thanks, Rick. Uh, otherwise, just Google it, Alf, the Macro Compass. You will find it. It's a free macro newsletter. So you don't need to pay anything, of course. You can just read my, um, my notes. I push out about five or six notes a month. They cover both educational macro topics and they provide actionable investment ideas as well for your portfolio. Uh, otherwise, or I would say additionally, you can follow me on Twitter at MacroAlf, uh, on LinkedIn using my entire name, Alfonso Peccatiello. I wish you good luck with that. No, I'm just kidding. And that's it. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Alf. It was awesome having you again to share your thoughts on, on the macro environment going forward. Thank you, Sri, and happy birthday again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, 
make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.